So good to have each of you here this evening, this morning, I'm sorry, uh, as we worship together. We're thinking today about joy and what that has to do with Jesus and his coming. Joy is a word we find often in the Bible. You may be surprised at the context within which this word is used in the Bible. Let me give you an example. David's words in Psalm 4, uh, verses 6 and 7. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Notice that David does not say that he has joy because of his abundance of food and drink. His joy is greater than the joy of people who have those things. Paul tells the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 4, he talks about this, In all our affliction I am overflowing with joy. He talks about others who've been granted a similar joy in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The author of Hebrews talks about Jesus' own example of joy. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12, verse 2. James encourages us. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's in James 1, verses 2 and 3. It seems that the kind of joy the Bible talks about is often counterintuitive. So let's consider a prophecy about the coming of Jesus that calls us to counterintuitive joy. We're in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. Let's begin in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think to understand Zechariah's words, we have to understand something of the context within which they were written. Most people agree that chapters 1 through 8 of Zechariah represent a specific period, and then chapters 9 through uh, 14, I believe it is, uh, are probably written a little bit later. But the, the situation in which Zechariah wrote his prophecy was after uh, the fall of Jerusalem. Now, for centuries, God had been through the prophets calling the people of Israel back to covenant faithfulness with him because he wanted to protect them and guard them and guide them in life. But they continued continually rejected God and turned to false gods and false idols and some of them were, were horrendous. They were
worship of some of these gods involved even sacrificing your own children to these gods. And they were doing all of this. And God continually called them back away from all of that. But they would not listen. And finally God said, I am done protecting you uh, and all the atrocities you are choosing to do with your lives. And I'm not going to protect you. And because of that, Babylon was able to come in and conquer the city of Jerusalem. And not only did they conquer, but they destroyed every building of any significance. They destroyed the temple. They tore down the wall around the city. And they killed a whole lot of people. And of the ones they didn't kill, most of them, they dragged off into slavery in Babylon. They spent 70 years in Babylon. And God uh, moved and the Babylonian Empire was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. It became the Persian Empire. And Cyrus of Persia was one of the kings. And God used him to uh, issue an edict. And he said, all the Jews who would like to may now return from, from bondage and from uh, being in exile. And they can come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Seventy years that they had been in exile. They were offered the chance to return and many returned, the most pious, the ones who longed for uh, being able to go to the temple and bring sacrifices and reinstitute the worship of Yahweh the way it was described in the books of Moses. They wanted to return and rebuild the temple but when they got back and started the project, uh, they initially offended the people of the northern area of Samaria so they became enemies. And here's the thing, the Persians had made that whole area one region in their empire and they put the seat of government for the whole region in Samaria. So when the people of Samaria are the ones that are upset with what the Jews are trying to do in Jerusalem, they try at every point to... Uh, to oppose everything they're doing and they send letters off to Babylon and they're successful in ordering that they halt the reconstruction of the temple so they got back they started to rebuild the temple and all of a sudden an edict comes back and says no stop uh, don't rebuild the temple and for 18 years the returned exiles would walk past the rubble of the temple and uh, 18 years the work was halted and it's at that point that God raises up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and they come to the people of Jerusalem with a message of hope and they're saying uh, get back rebuild the temple of Yahweh and let's uh, worship him and let's uh, live the covenant uh, relationship with him that we have and uh, the people responded and they started to rebuild and God worked in such a way that the authorities allowed them to do this even though they still had enemies in Samaria the Persians officials uh, authorized it and they're able to rebuild the temple and they finally finished building it it's probably uh, shortly after the rebuilding of the temple and they've reinstituted worship and uh, they're so excited because there's a governor by the name of Zerubbabel that the Persians have put in charge and he's a descendant of David so they're hopeful that God is going to restore the monarchy and that the dynasty of David is once more going to rule in Jerusalem and they're going to be returning to their former glory. But things don't quite pan out that way. Zerubbabel disappears from the, from the historical record. Uh, maybe that the Persians decided that this hope in the Davidic monarchy was uh, more of a danger than a help. So they remove Zerubbabel. And it's probably around that moment where they rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel's no longer on the scene. People are discouraged. That's when we get this prophecy. Rejoice greatly 
It's a call to joy. Not just a little bit. Uh, it's, it's a call to uh, overabundant rejoicing, uh, joy to the highest degree. And it's a call to the daughter of Zion. Zion is a poetic way to reference the city of Jerusalem. Those who have been produced by this city of Jerusalem, who have come into the world because uh, they happen to be in this city. The daughter of Jerusalem. Shout aloud. Celebrate. Be happy. I'm sure people at the time thought there wasn't a whole lot to be happy about. There wasn't a whole lot to rejoice about. And why are they called to rejoice? Behold, and it's almost like an announcement, and you can imagine the city of Jerusalem turning to look in the direction Zechariah is pointing. What is coming? Your king is coming to you. Righteous. And having salvation is he. So this is a king who's going to do what is right. Who's not going to abuse. Who's not going to misuse power. But he's going to establish things that are right. And operate from a a position of rightness. Of righteousness. And he's going to rescue the people. He's going to save them. He's going to bring them victory. And I can imagine those listening to this prophecy uh, playing through their mind the glory days of David, the greatest king Israel ever had, the days in which he uh, was the one God used to turn Israel from a band of scattered tribes always at the whim and the mercy of all their neighboring enemies and always being attacked by Philistines or Ammonites or Moabites or who knows who. Everybody, everywhere did what they wanted during the period of the judges and God brought David on the scene and used him to defeat all these enemies. He was a tremendous military leader. And uh, during David's reign, Israel finally coalesced into a powerful nation in that region and were able to live in peace, a peace that David's son Solomon enjoyed and did the most with. Surely that's what they're envisioning. We're going to return to that. God's bringing David back. He's bringing a descendant of David back to us and he's going to do what David did for us. He's going to defeat our enemies and he's going to lead us. But notice how the description continues. Humble. That word we translate humble uh, has not just the meaning. We, we, th- we tend to think of the word in terms of a, a disposition or an attitude, right? Uh, humility as, as an attitude. But that word also means in Hebrew, poor. So it, it's more about your station in life than your attitude about things. This king is coming out of poverty. He's not coming out of privilege. And let's see, what's he riding? He's riding a donkey. He's not riding the most fearsome Egyptian stallion. He's not riding a war horse in in victory celebration, parading into the city of Jerusalem. He's riding a donkey. Wait, let's correct that. That's too glorious. A baby donkey. He's riding a baby donkey. That's about as as insignificant an animal as you can ride before it can't support your weight. This king we are called to celebrate looks nothing like the kings we're accustomed to celebrating. 
He doesn't come in with all the pomp and circumstance. He doesn't come in with the military might and all the things we think you need to accomplish something significant in this world. This righteous king who saves, who rescues, who provides victory is coming in the most unexpected of ways. There's something very contradictory about this description. Zechariah calls on the returned exiles to rejoice greatly at the arrival of God's king who arrives in poverty and meekness. Think of your own life. How has God taught you to find joy in things you might have once considered insignificant? Let's keep reading verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So how is this humble king riding on a baby donkey going to make things better? Well, God says, well, here's what I'm doing. I'm removing the chariot from Ephraim. I'm removing the war horse from Jerusalem. I am cutting off the battle bow. Again, that seems like the exact opposite of what you need. You don't win battles without armies. You don't defeat enemies without chariots and horses and bows. But this king is removing the instruments of war from the people. And perhaps the exiles reading this or hearing this for the first time might have thought, well, done, done, and done. We have no army. We have no military might. We have no bow, no chariot, no war horse. And God is letting them know, yes, that's exactly how I am doing this. We're not talking about another King David in that sense. We're not talking about a military leader who is going to bring peace by killing enemies. Which, by the way, does not result in lasting peace. God is going to work through this king in a way that does not depend at all on military might. I believe this prophecy is specifically about Jesus. And if, as we observe the arrival of Jesus on the scene, you could certainly describe him as humble in origin. In fact, some of his first disciples, when they heard where he grew up, they said, can anything good come from that dump? Can anything good come out of that nowhere place? That's where Jesus came from. And uh, along the way, he even had offers. There were times where the people wanted to take him and make him king, and he would, run, he would go away. He would remove himself from that situation because he refused to raise armies. He refused to play politics. He did not curry the favor of the powerful and influential, even within Jewish life. He did not curry the favor of the high priest or the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem or the Pharisees in Galilee in Jerusalem. He did not try to build something through coalitions with the powers that be. He told his disciples to be rid of the weapons. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. 
he very famous, famously talked about blessings. We know them as the Beatitudes. Who is it that is truly blessed? The meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The poor. Those who make peace are blessed. And Jesus celebrated uh, things that our world does not prize or value. In our world, the movers and shakers, the influencers, the people everybody is looking at are the ones that uh, are in positions of power and influence. And they change the world by uh, effectively imposing their will on others. God talks about a king who's going to do this amazing work. But he's not going to do it the way the world does things. He's going to speak peace to the nations. He's going to bring peace. And he's going to do it without weapons. He's going to do this without implements of war. And it's been the axiomatic uh, assumed truth of human history and culture and society the world over since we've had such a thing as culture and society that you need force to implement peace. And yet he's not going to do it that way. He will speak peace to the nations. And it's not going to just be a handful of people that he's going to affect. His rule is going to be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Now, uh, uh, some translations say the Euphrates. Some, uh, many, most of them throw in the definite article there, the river, and that tends to be a way to refer to the Euphrates in the post-exilic period, that great river that goes through the, the Fertile Crescent. But in the Hebrew, there's no article there. It's just from river to the ends of the earth, and the idea being pick any river, and from there to however far you could go on the earth, that is where his rule is going to extend. He's going to have absolute dominion over the world and he's going to do that without instruments of power. God promises to remove all military might from his people as he establishes his own dominion over the world. How does God call us to conquer in ways that seem counterintuitive? Let's keep reading verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. God says, there is a covenant between me and you. It is a covenant established by blood. Now, we could say that the first covenant, uh, there was a sacrifice of animals with the covenant of Moses. But we also know that there's a second covenant established by the blood of Jesus himself. Because of the blood that puts us in this relationship, this mutual commitment between us and God. And because of God's commitment to us in the blood of that covenant. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. I thought that was a little odd. Waterless pit, what is that all about? And I, I tried to look it up and I only found one other reference in the Bible to a waterless pit. It's in the story of Joseph. Joseph. 
you know the story, Joseph had uh, 11 brothers, um, and I think at this point there were only 10 of them. His younger brother had not yet been born, I think. But uh, his older brothers did not like Joseph. And there's a day when they finally say, we've had enough. We don't like this kid. He's dad's favorite. But boy, uh, he just makes us all look bad and we're done. We're going to kill him. And Reuben, the oldest of them, says, guys, we can't kill him. That'll make us guilty before God. It's going to bring curses down on us. Let's not do that. So they say, okay, well, let's just throw him in this uh, empty pit. There's no water in it. Let's just dump him in there and let him die. And that way we didn't kill him. He just, you know, he died. And maybe we won't fall under a curse. And there, was, uh, there were plans. You know, Reuben's plan was to come back later and get him out of that pit. But before Reuben could do that, the other brothers are hanging around. And they run across a band of Ishmaelites traveling slavers. And they say, oh, here's what we can do with Joseph. We'll just sell him to the slavers and make a profit in the, in the, at the same time. And that way we haven't killed him. We're not under any curse. So they get him out of that waterless pit and sell him into slavery. You know Joseph's story. Not only was he uh, sold into slavery through nothing bad that he had done, through no fault of his own. In fact, they hated him because he was the goody two-shoes in the family. He ends up a slave and then he ends up in Egypt as a slave. And even there it goes from bad to worse. Because there uh, the, the master he's working for, his wife tries to get him to sleep with her. And he says, I can't do that. That's wrong. I should not do that. That would be a sin against God and against my master. So he refuses and she falsely accuses him of trying to rape her. And he ends up in prison for years. And it seems like Joseph's life is a clear example of somebody who tried to do the right thing at every step. And every time, it just went from bad to worse. Is that the reference God is making here? Now, we know that Joseph eventually was released from slavery, was released from that waterless pit, was released from prison. Eventually, uh, he was placed in a position and God used him and gave him the information he needed and the skills he needed through the hardships. He developed these skills uh, that he could lead the whole nation of Israel in preparing for a devastating famine that was coming. And God used Joseph to save the ancient human race at a key moment in human history when uh, most of the human race is in this area and that, that famine would have wiped out, would have decimated human population. God used Joseph to prepare for seven years. They were storing up food and preparing for the famine. And the world was saved because Joseph was the instrument God used. Now, it's interesting to notice that this saving of the world through Joseph did not involve the use of military might. Joseph did not command armies. We never hear that he used any war chariots or bows or any of that kind of stuff. And yet God used him through the hardships of this life he lived, placing him in the right place in the right moment. And even Joseph himself, looking back on his life, rejoices at what God has done in his life 
To the point that he tells his brother, brothers later in life, guys, don't be worried about the horrible thing you did to me because you wanted it for death, but God wanted it for life. And the result has been life. And the misery of his life became the greatest source of joy for Joseph. So God is talking about privilege, but it's a privilege uh, that may be fraught with hardship. It's a joy that may be hard won. The journey may be painful and difficult, but the promise is joy. God seems to reference Joseph, whose faithfulness resulted in hardship after hardship. How has God called you to joy through hardship? Let's read the last verse. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. I love the ambiguity of that phrase. It's a genitive construction. Prisoners of hope. And there are at least two ways to interpret it, interpret a genitive construction. It can be an attributive genitive, in which case we are describing the prisoners. So that would mean uh, hopeful prisoners, prisoners who have hope. The, the, the genitive is an attribute of the noun. Uh, the other way is possessive. In other words, you are the prisoners who are possessed by hope. I kind of like that one better. It's not just hopeful prisoners. You're prisoners, but you have hope. It's people who are captive precisely because of their hope. Why have these guys 70 years later left everything behind and made the long journey to return to Jerusalem to rebuild? I'm sure they're wondering why they did that. It's not been as fun as they thought it was going to be. It's been really hard and difficult, and they have enemies on every side, and they feel powerless, and they're facing all of this, and the reason they're in that pickle is the hope they have in God. That hope has made them captive. Sometimes that's the way hope works. We, we stake our hope in Christ and the journey, the, the cost becomes so great sometimes and the pain so real and we, we're tempted to give it up, but we cannot. We are prisoners of our hope because we know that the God who promises keeps his promise and we endure what we must endure and we are held captive by our hope. To the point that if it costs me my life, I still cannot let go. That's the kind of hope we see in the New Testament description of the first believers in Jesus. The first who followed him. So many of them ended up being killed for their hope in Christ. They were prisoners of that hope. And that might sound awful. Why would I want to be a prisoner of hope? Why would I feel compelled to hang on to this even if it becomes life-threatening? What's the second half? God declares, I will restore to you double. Whatever you lose because of this hope, 
you're getting more back than you lost. So many times the hope we have in Christ works that way. It is painful. It is expensive. Jesus said it's going to cost you everything you have to follow me. You have to lay it all on the table. You've got to give it all up. And here is the promise to the prisoners of hope. I will give you double what you lost. God restores and he's generous. But the path to joy can be painful and it can be costly. Hope is presented as a captor who holds us prisoners until God gives us double what's been taken. How have you allowed hope in God to take you captive? Jesus is cause for joy to all who receive him. All who acclaim him as their king and savior. Even though he rides into town riding a baby donkey. Even though he lived a life of poverty. A man of humble estate. We find in his redeeming work on our behalf. On behalf of the whole world. A pattern to follow. If we will turn to Jesus as our life, as our reason to exist, as our security and our purpose in living, we're going to find a joy that the hardships and difficulties of this life will never be able to take from us. By embracing his own life of self-denial and service to others, we can discover in him the kind of joy that weighed more heavily for Jesus than even the cross itself. Will you find your joy in Jesus? We're going to sing a song. And it's a time of response. Let me ask you to stand. There are some people who are going to come here to the front on either side. If God has spoken to you through his word today and he's calling you to him and you have not done this before, you have not surrendered your life to him as Lord, as rescuer of your life and you're willing to become a captive of his, of the hope that we have in him. Come today and these take either, either side and, and tell, share this with them and they'll help you pray and ask Jesus to take your life. Maybe you already know him and it's just something he's reminded you of today that you need to make right in your walk with him. Come and let them pray with you. Maybe you just need to come to the altar, kneel and pray. The altar is open. This is your time to respond in any way God lays on your heart. Please come while we sing.